0: All the rules and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Let's pray, gracious, merciful Father. Lord, we pray that as we prepare to walk through this uh, this passage from Exodus twenty-four, and as we uh, continue uh, to celebrate the first advent of our Lord Jesus Christ, Father, we pray that you would still our hearts, still our minds. That you would uh, enable us to, to put aside all the cares of this world, Lord, and to focus our attention now upon you and upon your word. We pray, Father, that you would reveal to us more of your son's glory and all that he has accomplished for us, not just in his birth, but in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. And that we would ever remember that all of that is what Advent, what Christmas is all about. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> so this morning's passage is from Exodus 24, verses 3 to 8. And the title is The Promise Preserved. And as we continue in this Advent series. Now, we've now seen how God made a promise back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Right after Adam and Eve have just sinned against God, they violated the one law that he gave them, God curses them along with uh, the serpent. And of course, in cursing them, he curses all of humanity, but, which they rightly deserved, of course, but even in the midst of his cursing, in the midst of his Anger, God's anger and his wrath and his justice is tempered with grace. We see that because God makes a promise to them in Genesis 3.15 that someday, though they brought this on themselves, someday God will send a redeemer who will crush the head of the serpent while the serpent will merely strike his heel. And then we see, or we saw last week, that God then proclaims that promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, the proto-evangelium, the gospel proclaimed in advance to Abraham, that God someday, through Abraham, that Abraham would be a blessing to all nations. Of course, by the end of Abraham's life, He himself may be wondering how that comes to be because Abraham does not die with a large family. He only has one child from Sarah, two, if you count Ishmael, six others with his second wife, but nonetheless, all total, eight sons. So by the end of his life, he's probably wondering, how am I going to be a blessing to all nations? My family is not... Very large. Nonetheless, God makes that promise to Abraham. And now we're going to see that God establishes a covenant with the nation of Israel in order to preserve that promise. So God makes a promise in Genesis 3 15. He then proclaims that promise to Abraham and enters into a covenant relationship with Abraham. But now here in Exodus 23, God is going to enter into a covenant relationship with the entire nation of Israel in order to preserve that promise. And as we make our way to December 25th, what we are seeing is how God sovereignly ensures throughout all of redemptive history that that promise made way back in the garden will come to fulfillment. And that when it does, when it does, we will be able to look back through the corridors of time and see that God was faithful. The promise he made to to Adam and Eve, the promise proclaimed to Abraham, all of that comes to fruition in the birth of Christ in Bethlehem. And so throughout the entire Old Testament, what we see is the light of Christ getting brighter and brighter and brighter. And so the passage that we're looking at this morning recounts the covenant that God makes with Israel, also known as the covenant of law, sometimes referred to as the Mosaic Covenant because it's a covenant that is initiated through Moses. It's not made with Moses, it's made with the entire nation, but uh, Moses is the one who Uh, God works through in order to establish this covenant and just to give you the timeline this is Exodus 24 takes place about 500 years after the covenant that God makes with Abraham about 500 years later and we say you know when we study world history we 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 throw out those numbers and we think okay so it's a relatively soon so to speak but 500 years is is a long time Right, The United States has only been around about 250 years. 500 years from the time of Abraham, and it is approximately 2,500 years since the fall of Adam and Eve. And we're looking at Exodus 24. We are looking at about 2,500 years. If you go back 2,500 years from today, that puts us at about the 5th century B.C. So for 2,500 years, God has been orchestrating all of redemptive history down to the point of Exodus 24 where we are today. When I talk about a covenant, just as a reminder, I know I've said this before, that a covenant is a solemn binding agreement between two or more parties. That's really the basic definition. You could add more to that depending on the type of covenant you're talking about, but it is a solemn binding agreement between two or more parties. And God makes a covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 to keep the promise that he makes him in Genesis chapter 12. And now God enters into a covenant with the entire nation of Israel in order to preserve that promise, the promise made to Abraham, the promise made to Adam and Eve. God enters into a covenant with the entire nation of Israel to preserve that promise promise. And so the setting in Exodus chapter 24 is that the Israelites have just been delivered out of slavery in Egypt, literally just a few weeks earlier. They've been delivered out of slavery. They're now sitting at the foot of Mount Sinai where they will remain for a year. They will stay there for a year as Moses writes to Pentateuch and as they build uh, the, the tabernacle and all of the tabernacle furnishings. And Moses has been given by God for the people of Israel at this point the Ten Commandments and a series of laws running from Exodus chapter 20 to Exodus chapter 23. So that's where we are. They've already received the Ten Commandments and a series of laws. There'll be more laws that they will be given in uh, Leviticus and more in Numbers and then in Deuteronomy as well. But they've, given the, they've been given the first set of laws, so to speak. And so then we see in verse three now, so that's the context, that's the setting. We see in verse three, scripture says, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So they make a verbal commitment to God, we will keep all of your laws. They say the same thing in verse 7, the second half of verse 7. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. They're not being foolish with their words. They are being thankful. They recognize God has delivered them. He's brought them out of slavery, and now he's given them these laws. Yes, we're going to keep them. We promise to keep the laws that you have given us. But this is what makes this covenant different than the covenant that God makes with Abraham. You see, the covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 is an unconditional covenant. In other words, Abraham is not required to do anything in order to remain in covenant relationship with God. Yes, he's given the law of circumcision, and it's called that, the law of circumcision. He's required to keep it, but he's not required to keep the law of circumcision in order to remain in covenant relationship with God. We see that, for example, right at the beginning of uh, Joshua, Joshua chapter 5, we're told that, that Joshua had to take the time to have all of the, the men of Israel uh, circumcised because all of those who came out of Egypt, we're told in Joshua 5, all those who came out of Egypt were circumcised circumcised But those who were born during the 40 years of wilderness wandering had not kept the law of circumcision. And yet God continues to be faithful to them and to bring them into the promised land and to give them victory over their enemies. The promise made with Abraham is an unconditional promise, which is why in Genesis 15, God is the only one who passes through the pieces. He's saying to Abraham, I alone will keep this promise promise that i am making to you abraham all you have to do is believe it is by faith that abraham remains in covenant relationship with god but the covenant that god makes with israel here is a conditional covenant that's made clear back in exodus chapter 19 verses 5 And six, God says this to the people of Israel through Moses. Now, therefore, if you will indeed. So you hear the if, if. This is what God says. If, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. If you keep my covenant and my covenant laws, then I will remain your God and your king, and I will protect you and provide for you. But if you do not, and you break the covenant, then God tells them in numerous places that he will be against them. And so the people say, whatever God commands us to do, we will do. We will be obedient to God and to his laws and to his commandments. And so the text goes on to say in verse 4, and Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Now, I think it's worth noting that uh, when it says all the words of the Lord, you see at the beginning of verse 7, then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of The people. So when it says all the words of the Lord, when it talks about the book of the covenant, we're not just talking about the Ten Commandments. We're not just talking about the laws written down in chapters 20 to 23, although certainly that would have been the immediate reference. But the book of the covenant is what refers, it refers to all of the laws that were given to the people of Israel via the Pentateuch. That is the first five books of the Old Testament, which is why the book of the covenant is also referred to as the book of the law in Deuteronomy 29, 21. It's also referred to as the book of Moses in 2 Chronicles 25, verse 4, because Moses wrote the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All of that was viewed in the mind of Israel as one book or one set, maybe five volumes, but it's all one entity. It's one thing. This is the book of the law. This is the book of the covenant. This is the book of Moses. It is the law that God, that Moses commands or that God commands through Moses, for example, in Deuteronomy 31 to be read in its entirety every seven years to the nation of Israel at the Feast of Booths. That would have been a lot of reading to do. Uh, But it is possible if people took it in shifts. We're not told that it was one person that did it. They may have taken turns on a platform reading a few chapters at a time throughout the day. You could probably read the entire Pentateuch in one day if you just consistently read it from beginning to end. But nonetheless, every seven years, the book of the covenant, the book of Moses, the book of the law, the Pentateuch was to be read to the people of Israel to remind them of God's laws. Because you got to remember, they lived in a day and age when not everybody had the Old Testament in their home, right? Very few people had access to the entire Old Testament. They would hear portions of it read on the Sabbath day in the synagogue, But it was important that they get the whole thing at least once every seven years. So then we read, the text continues in verse 4, Moses rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. These sacrifices are gonna be important in just a minute. And Moses took half of the blood, so they make these sacrifices, they offer these sacrifices. Then Moses takes half of the blood and he puts it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. That is the altar that is inside the courtyard of the tabernacle. Then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. So he throws some on the altar and then he throws some onto the people and said, behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So the point of all of this blood and all of this sprinkling on the altar and the people and the reading of the law is that there must be a shedding of blood in order for a covenant a binding covenant to be established between god and his people just like with abraham there had to be the animals that were sacrificed there had to be the shedding of blood because the idea in these covenants you offer the sacrifice you sprinkle the blood on the altar you sprinkle the blood on the people the idea that is being communicated is that if either one of us violates the terms of this covenant, if I, God, fail to be faithful to my people for no reason, but I just simply fail to be faithful, then may I cease to exist, is what God is saying. But if you fail to keep the terms of the covenant, then may what happened to these animals that have been sacrificed happen to you the author of hebrews makes that very clear for example in hebrews chapter 9 verses 18 to 20 the author of hebrews says this therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood for when every commandment of the law had been declared by moses to all the people so now he's actually referring back to exodus chapter 24 He took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. So again, in making this covenant, there is the shedding of blood as a visible and physical reminder to the people of the enormity the the gravitas of this covenant that God has entered into with them. And should the people fail to keep their part of the covenant, then what happened to the animals will happen to them. And in fact, that is exactly what happens to them. And God tells them that that's what happens to them in Jeremiah 34. I'll just read this to you. Jeremiah 34, verse 18 Listen to what God says to the nation. And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between the parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf and I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives. Their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. God ultimately destroys Israel, first by the hands of the Assyrians, the northern kingdom, then by the hands of the Babylonians with the fall of the southern kingdom. But understand that it's not simply that God destroyed them because they failed to keep the law perfectly. God never expected them to keep the law perfectly. That's why grace was written into the law. All of the animal sacrifices that were available to them when they violated the law. There were certain sacrifices they could bring to the temple. Now, not every sin had a sacrifice provided for them. There were some sins that God simply would not tolerate. For the most part, grace was written into the law. In fact, one could argue that the law itself is an act of grace. We tend to think of the law as just law, but the law itself is an act of grace. Because when God gave the Israelites the law, he was not making this up arbitrarily. The law is a reflection of the righteous and holy character of God. He was revealing himself to the people of Israel. And in that is an act of grace. So God does not punish the nation of Israel simply for failing to keep the law perfectly. But rather, God punishes the nation of Israel for playing the harlot with paganism. You see, because God views this covenant, in fact, God views every covenant that he enters into much like a marriage covenant. To be unfaithful to the covenant is to be unfaithful to the person in which you have entered this covenant relationship with. It is marital unfaithfulness between God and his bride, so to speak, the nation of Israel. In fact, God uses that kind of graphic language in Ezekiel 23, and I'm not going to read the whole chapter. This is one of the more R-rated chapters in the Bible, but it's important. I'll read you just a few verses. God says to the nation of Israel, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man. There were two women, the daughters of one mother. They played the whore in Egypt. They played the whore in their youth." There their breasts were pressed and their virgin bosoms handled. Ahola was the name of the elder, and Aholaba the name of her sister. They became mine, and they bore sons and daughters. As for their names, Ahola is Samaria, that is the northern kingdom of Israel, and Aholaba is Jerusalem. Ahola played the whore while she was mine, and she lusted after her lovers, the Assyrians. "'Warriors clothed in purples, governors and commanders, "'all of them desirable young men, horsemen riding on horses. "'She bestowed her whoring upon them, "'the choicest men of Assyria, all of them, "'and she defiled herself with all of the idols "'of everyone after whom she lusted. "'She did not give up her whoring that she had begun in Egypt, "'for in her youth men had lain with her "'and handled her virgin bosom and poured out their whoring lust upon her. And he goes on and on and on to talk in graphic detail about the sin of the northern kingdom of Israel and the sin of the southern kingdom of Israel as well. This is how God views sin. This is how all sin, all sin, external sins, internal sins, sins of actions, and activities, sins of the mind, thoughts that we entertain. This is how God views all sin. All sin is viewed this way in the eyes of a holy and righteous God. The point is that God makes this covenant in Exodus chapters 20-24 to with the nation of Israel in order to push forward the promise of Genesis 3.15 to someday send a Redeemer. The covenant of law was necessary to bring about the birth of Christ. I know the question then is, how? How does this covenant help bring about the promise of Genesis 3.15? This is because Scripture gives us four reasons Four reasons why God established a covenant of law with Israel. Number one, to convict God's people of their sin. Paul tells us that that is the purpose of the law in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. Paul writes, what then shall we say that the law is sin by no means? If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetedness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. So Paul says, the law is good. Because the law is what reveals to us God's righteous standard and causes us to realize that we are sinful. Paul says, if it were not for the law, I would not have known what it meant to covet. If the law had not said, thou shalt not covet. So God gives Israel the law so that they might know that they are in need of a savior. So that they would be made aware of their sinfulness. Number two, God establishes the law of covenant with Israel to point the people toward their need for a savior. So one, it reveals to them their sinfulness, but number two, it reveals to them their need for a true redeemer. Hebrews chapter 10, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never... Do you hear that? It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? If the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament could actually atone for sins, why keep offering them every year? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, listen, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. In other words, the Bible tells us that the whole point of all of these sacrifices was simply to remind them day after day, month after month, year after year, you need a true deliverer because this is never going to work. This is never going to work. The third reason God enters into a covenant relationship with Israel is to hem, in, to hem in the people of God in order to bring about the promised seed of Abraham. To hem in the people of God in order to bring about the promised seed of Abraham. Paul talks about this in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, well, first of all, in chapter 2, Paul strongly argues in the book of Galatians for the first uh, two chapters that justification before God is by faith alone. Apart from works, apart from any law keeping, he makes that so emphatically clear. I'll read to you just two verses, Galatians 2, verses 15 and 16. Paul writes this, We ourselves, talking about him and Peter, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know, we Jews know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, listen, and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So Paul makes clear justification is by faith alone and not by works, not by law-keeping. Today we might add not by baptism, not by church membership. It is by faith alone in Christ alone. The question then that Paul has to wrestle with is, Well, then why the law? If we're not saved by the law, if we're not justified by the law, what was the whole point of the law in the first place? He answers that question in verse 19 of chapter 3. He asks the question himself, why then the law? Right, good question. Why why have we been keeping all these laws if they can't save us? Why then the law, Paul says, it was added because of transgressions, Until, in other words, it was added because of your sinfulness, the nation of Israel. Because you are sinful people, the law was given to you in order to control your sinful behavior, to reveal to you God's righteous standards. It was added because of transgression, but listen to this, until, do you hear the temporal language? The law was never intended to be permanent. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. The offspring. What offspring? Paul just argued a few verses earlier. Now, the promise that were made to Abraham and to his offspring, it does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. So when you hear the word offspring in Galatians chapter 3, think Christ. That's who Paul is talking about. The law was added because of transgressions, Until the offspring, that is Christ, until Christ should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place, that is, the law was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law, then, contrary to the promises of God? If justification is by faith alone, then is the law contrary to the promises of God? Paul's response, certainly not. Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would have been by the law. If God could have saved through the law, he would have done that. But the scripture, listen to this, the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith, that is the promise given to Abraham, by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, that is, the birth of Christ, our understanding of justification by faith alone. Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned, here it is again, until, temporal, imprisoned until the coming faith should be revealed. So then the law was our guardian, protected the people of God. The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. In other words, the law prevented the people of Israel from scattering all over the world because the law by default separated them from the nations. The law screamed one message to the surrounding nations, stay out, you're different, you don't belong, we are Jews, we are the people of God, And so it kept them together. It kept them separate. The law was their guardian until Christ would be revealed. The fourth reason God gave the law to the nation of Israel and entered into a covenant with them is to ensure that God would get all the glory when the Messiah came. You see, because again, had God not given the law and he simply made a promise to Abraham and then sat back and said, okay, I made that promise, then the descendants of Abraham would have intermarried, they would have scattered all over the Middle East, and then when the Messiah was born, no one would know it. How do we know that he's just born somewhere in Russia or Germany or, I mean, where are we? How do we know? God gives the law to keep the people of Israel together until the promised seed of Abraham would come. The only reason Luke and Matthew can trace their genealogy of Christ all the way back to Abraham and all the way back to Adam is because of the law that kept them together and made a straight line from Adam to Abraham all the way to Christ. So The covenant of law inaugurated at Mount Sinai was temporary was never intended to be permanent. It was temporary and was fulfilled by Christ. And Christ fulfills the purpose of the law in at least three ways. And this is where it becomes very important for us in regards to Advent. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this in verses 17 and 18. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Christ did not come to abolish the law. He doesn't just throw it out. He fulfills it, which we've just talked about. He fulfills the purpose for which the law was established to bring about the promised seed of Abraham. So now that the promised seed of Abraham has come, there's no longer a need for the law. The purpose for the law has been fulfilled. Christ fulfills, number two, Christ fulfills the demands of the law on our behalf. Because in Matthew chapter five, verse 20, Paul, or Jesus goes on to say this, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That would have been astounding to the people of Israel to hear. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter into the kingdom of heaven. They would have thought to themselves, oh, my word, we're all lost. And as if if that's not enough, Jesus goes on to say at the end of that chapter, verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That is still God's standard. Absolute righteous perfection in order to enter into eternal life. Well, how does that happen then? Feast your ears upon this. 1 Corinthians 1.30. And because of him... You are in Christ Jesus. You are in union with Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Christ becomes our righteousness because of our union with Him by faith. The perfect righteousness which God demands, Christ achieves. and We are credited with that righteousness by faith. Thirdly, Christ fulfills the penalty of the law. Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 to 13, Paul writes this, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things, written in the book of the law and do them. If you can't keep the law perfectly, you're doomed. You want to try to earn righteousness by, by law-keeping, you got to keep all of it perfectly or none of it helps. Verse 11, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them "...shall live by them," listen to this, "...Christ redeemed us, he delivered us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, "'Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree.'" So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, what does that mean? Abraham was justified by faith. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. In other words, the law of God demands that someone must die for sin. That can't be animals. The animal sacrifices never worked because animals weren't responsible for bringing sins into the world. People were. But no ordinary human being can die for our sins because we're all sinful, we have our own sins to pay for. I can't pay for your sins because I got my own sins to pay for. So Christ comes into the world, and he's born in Bethlehem. And he lives a perfect life of obedience to the law. He does for us what we could never do, keep the law of God, keep all of the demands of God perfectly, perfectly. So then he dies on the cross to pay for our sins. And he can do that because he doesn't have any sins of his own to pay for. All he has is this treasury of merit, to use a Catholic term, but it is in Christ. And that treasury of righteousness is given to us by faith. The moment we put faith in Christ, His righteousness is credited to us. So during Advent, we celebrate Christ coming into the world, not only to deliver us from the power of sin, Satan, and death, but to deliver us from the burden and the curse of the law. We can't keep it. We can't live up to it. We are under the curse of the law because of our sin. Christ was born into the world to deliver us from the burden and the curse of the law. Born in Bethlehem in order to keep the demands of the law perfectly for us and then to pay the penalty which the law demands. This is why Christ was born, and this is what we celebrate during Advent. Let's pray. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, we thank you again and we praise you for your amazing grace and mercy for sending your Son into the world in fulfillment of the promise made to Adam and Eve, in fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. We thank you for establishing a covenant with the nation of Israel in order to preserve that promise so that 2,000 years after Christ, we can look back through the corridors of time and know that you were faithful. And we thank you, and we praise you, We thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming into the world for us, for doing for us what we could never do for ourselves, and that all of the blessings of Abraham, the blessings of being in a saving relationship with the living God come to us simply by believing. We praise you, Lord God. In Christ's name, amen.